Father, thank you for a lovely morning, and we thank you, too, for this time that's set aside for study. We ask you, Lord, to help us as we uh, reflect on a thorny matter and help us as we try to find our way through it, not get cut up too much. In Christ's name, amen. So the thorny matter is the relationship of the church and the state, and uh, we're in chapter 23 of the Confession, which is dealing directly with that matter. Uh, it's uh, titled, Of the Civil Magistrate. And last week, I got into paragraph three a little bit, and it was brought to our attention that uh, there have been some significant changes uh, with respect to the original. So I'm going to read you both. So what you are used to is the Americanized version. In other words, there was some redacting and pretty significant redacting. Uh, so I'm going to read uh, what we have, and, uh, in America anyway, <laughs> and then I'll read you the original. And then we can spend all class talking about it. <laughs> so here's how it reads now. Uh, and the first, basically the first few clauses are the exact same. It's what comes after towards the end that changes radically. So, well, in fact, I've, in, in order to make this more dramatic, why don't I start with the original? I'll start with the original. So this is what uh, the Westminster divines approved. What we have later is what the American divines uh, did. <laughs> so here's the original. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so far so good. That reads exactly the way ours reads. Now the difference. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Now, this is an interesting thought. What if uh, President Biden said we're going to have uh, you know, a, a general assembly in the Presbyterian Church of America, and I'm going to be there? And we're going to address some matters of, of concern to me. <laughs> and we're going to conduct business. So that's, that's the original. Now here's how it reads uh, in the American uh, version. So as I noted, the first couple of clauses are the same. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the uh, keys of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, same. Now the difference or in the least interfere in matters of the faith. That's exactly the opposite. Yet, as nursing fathers, it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving the preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest, uh, in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full, free, and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger, 
And as Jesus Christ hath appointed a regular government and discipline in his church, no law of any commonwealth should interfere with, let, or hinder the due exercise thereof among the voluntary members of any denomination of Christians according to their own profession and belief. Uh, it, is, uh, it is the duty of the civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner that no person be suffered, either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity, to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, or injury to any other person whatsoever, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance. Pretty different. What do you think? Okay, so Molly votes for the original. Any thoughts? So, of course, what we're dealing with here is something that was uh, redacted uh, in the American church. So, the, those Presbyterians who were now under a, uh, you know, constitutional order that uh, prohibited the establishment of religion uh, made some adjustments, pretty significant ones. So, let's, let's think a little bit about this. I think sometimes when we look back on you know, the history of the West, or just the history of the world, uh, we kind of view it through the lens or the lenses of the American constitutional order as we you know, practice it today. We, we more or less assume that religion or beliefs or whatever you want to call sort of the prevailing way of thinking when it comes to spiritual matters, theological matters, metaphysical matters, is all just kind of personal stuff, and that there's really no relationship to the civil order. But we know that's just not the case. I mean, every, um, every civilization that we look at in antiquity, uh, everywhere in the world, has a kind of metaphysical, cosmological s sort of orientation and set of justifications, right? So uh, what we are dealing with now is the exception, not the rule. So it was, it was just kind of a given that religion and politics went together hand in glove, what we call religion. Because even the term religion is not something that people would have employed in the past. Uh, the, the word religion means to bind. Uh, in the Latin. So if, if you look at the etymology, it means to bind. Now everybody was like, ooh, I don't want to be bound. Well, really? I mean, you know, you're bound to your wife or you, to your husband. Is that a bad thing? Blessed be the tie that binds. So there, there's got to be glue, right? There's got to be stuff that holds a society together. So binding, uh, so, you know, we, in the name of freedom and freedom of conscience or liberty or whatever, we, we talk a lot about not binding the conscience. But does that mean that you never bind the conscience? No, you're selective. <laughs> you bind the conscience when it comes to say things like covetousness. Don't covet. I bound your conscience. Ooh, how dare you? <laughs> no, this is God's law, right? So God binds and then looses. And that's the, king, the keys of the kingdom, of binding and loosing, right? So when we talk about rule, we're talking about, okay, these are the places where we're going to constrict what's you know, practiced, believed, etc. You might think, well, how can you possibly bind 
beliefs. Well, we do it all the time. Uh, it's not uh, permissible to entertain the thought that you could boil your next door neighbor alive. Okay, we're gonna bind your conscience <laughs> on that matter. But what if you really believe that's okay? Genghis Khan did. Genghis Khan, you know, the great Mongol emperor, when he would defeat uh, an enemy, he would take the leader and boil him alive. Mmm, pleasant thought. <laughs> Why do you think he did that? Well, it certainly does away with your opposition, <laughs> right? You no longer have to deal with that guy. And what else do you do? You send a message. When I'm on the way, you better surrender or you're going to be bought alive. So, you know, and probably from Genghis's point of view, this was great policy. It worked fabulously. <laughs> we have examples of this over and over and over and over again. So, uh, sati. Are you familiar with the practice of sati in India? When a man died, his wife was burned on a pyre. Alive. That's Hinduism for you. <laughs> you know? And, you know, when the British uh, forbade the practice, you know, there were Hindus that said, we sincerely believe this is our religious, you know, this is our religious conviction. And, and what did the British say? We sincerely believe that's incredibly wrong. <laughs> so you're just not going to do it anymore. That's just it. We imposed a set of beliefs and that have stuck. It's still illegal uh, to do that in India. Even if, like, a woman really, really wanted to. <laughs> if she was, like, about to throw herself on the pyre, they'd say, no, 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 we're not going to let you do that, right? So this is, just the, this is just the reality of the situation. So the games that we play as Americans with this uh, have to do with the fact that we're just not very thinking very deeply about the matter. There really have to be certain kind of common convictions that help us to live together. You know, and, and you know, make our lives possible. Now, I'm very, you know, content. I'm not trying to uh, introduce some radical program right now, but I'm just sort of thinking out loud with you about the situation that we find ourselves in. And you know, there were Presbyterian uh, Reformed leaders who said we need to alter the confession on this matter. But now, here's the big but. We are at an inflection point in our society. So what, what's the assumption in the adjusted or sort of the redacted text? There is an assumption. Well, this is all the historical context. And uh, when the original was written, there was, uh, I mean, there were always wars on each other, which religions were beyond top. And at point, this point in time, they moved it Scottish. And can you speak a little bit to Steve? Yes, they were, they were um, well, historically, the original documents were written in a context where there's a greater uni a uniformity in, the, in that So let's put it plain. So when, they, when the Americans came, you know, they, they were, a lot of them were fleeing here. The British were fleeing here for freedom of their own religion. Some were Baptists, some were Quakers, some were... What do all those religions have in common? Faith in the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we're not talking about materialism. No, we're not talking about the kind of uh, outlook that made communism, you know, 
possible. We're not talking about uh, Islam. We're not talking about you know, Eastern religions, Buddhism, whatever. So we've got a much more complicated situation at the present. Furthermore, uh, there is a kind of operative philosophy that is at work that's kind of, you could say, filled the gap. Yeah, Can you just repeat the point? Steve's not that loud. Well, Steve just brought out the fact that uh, all of the people who came here originally and signed the Declaration of uh, Independence and are, you know, were involved in our founding were Christians. That's a pretty big deal. <laughs> even the ones that we have suspicions about, even the ones that we think, oh, Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, they were Christians in the so far as that their whole entire moral framework was already shaped. They had questions about miracles, that kind of stuff, but they weren't uh, at all uncomfortable with sort of the moral sort of ethos of Christianity. Yep, Christopher. So in the introduction to the copy I have, it says that these changes were introduced in, by the American Presbyterian Church in 1788. Pretty, pretty close to the, uh, you know, the time in which you know, the, these things are being instituted. Well, the Constitution 1789, if I'm trying to remember, is it 87, 89? So this is all kind of in the air. This is like, these are debates that are just uh, swirling uh, in these different environments. Yeah. There's this whole section 23, a debate that Christian citizens of America have obligation to the government, one of God's institutions, and to the church, or that the government can overrule the church. That's what, what, what you have is a very, again, kind of pre-modern understanding of the relationship between the church and the state. It's as though you're talking about a single thing, but two sides of it. So, okay, let's just think about, like, uh, the early church councils. You have Constantine sitting there, right? <laughs> you know, this is actually uh, a civil matter uh, in the early church. This is not just a bunch of, you know, bishops over here kind of working out matters. Often, civil authorities were calling for these things because of civil unrest due to different factions in the church duking it out. So this is, this is our heritage. You know? This is not like uh, an alien concept. In fact, what's new is what we have now. But what we have now, as I, I mentioned, is beginning to look untenable. So let me, let me, get, let me sort of fill you in on some other things. So right now, um, familiar with uh, the term classical liberalism, Classical liberalism does not mean the Democratic Party. Classical liberalism is a philosophical or a political philosophy that we look back to sort of seminal figures like John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and people like that. They developed social contract theory, and it was basically a way for um, you know, people in Europe to think about the development of their economy, uh, economies and uh, sort of the governing of their, their nations when there's some significant disagreement about fundamental matters. But what they all took for granted was that they are people who have 1,500 years of common religious background, right? 
So even Thomas Hobbes, you know, Leviathan, you know, he's got an entire section on ecclesial matters, the church, and the relationship of the church to the state. Locke, same kind of stuff. Now, what's sort of playing out is we've lost that sort of common heritage that we, we kind of unconsciously just assumed to be present, that was like in the air. It's no longer in the air. When you can, you know, take your kid and, you know, change his gender, pumping kid full of drugs and stuff like that, how does that comport uh, with our Christian heritage? It doesn't. There are radically new philosophies that have gained a lot of influence in our society that are explicitly anti-Christian. So what's, what this has led to is a series of really significant um, debates within sort of the intellectual community, the Christian intellectual community. So, for example, we just had on the podcast a guy named Joshua Mitchell, who teaches at Georgetown, pretty significant uh, a political philosopher and theorist. And uh, he, he more or less thinks that our uh, sort of seminal thinkers in the West in terms of classical liberalism had it right. Uh, and we need to kind of go back to that. We're going to have on the show uh, in a couple of weeks an, a friend of mine named Patrick Deneen who says, no, they were wrong from the start. It's been baked in. So he wrote a book, this huge seller, entitled Why Liberalism Failed. And again, he's not talking about Democratic Party. So you've got conservative sort of liberalism, which would be the Republican Party, and you've got progressive liberalism, which is the Democratic Party. The problem, according to Patrick, is they're both liberal at the core. And what we need is to recover a, a more sort of integrated society when it comes to the church and the state. So he's an integralist, Catholic integralist. Guess what that means? So I've known Pat for years, <laughs> and he's never you know, tried to burn me at the stake or anything. Uh, you know, he's been very nice to me. <laughs> but uh, you know, this is the kind of stuff that's, that's bubbling up now. And, and Pat teaches at Notre Dame. Guess who endorsed his book? Guess who blurbed his book? Why Liberalism Failed? Obama. This is huge. Like when I was at, I, I remember going to see Pat at a lecture at Harvard, and I went into the Coop, which is the bookstore in Harvard Square, and his book was featured prominently <laughs> right there on the table. He is a very serious, dedicated Roman Catholic political philosopher, and he's got huge influence. So this is the kind of stuff that's, that's swirling around at the moment. So yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation that we have with, with Pat. <laughs> but... So, uh, and so the, the nationalist thing, the nationalism thing, you've heard about like, you know, all the stirrings about nationalism. Why is that going on? It's, a, it's the crisis. So have you heard of the term le neoliberalism? The neoliberalists were people like uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and they are really sort of the architects of the latest phase of, or sort of the, the last phase of sort of the, the liberal project, which was globalism. So the globalist sort of program was all informed by a set of political convictions. It wasn't just, you know, let's just, you know, work together and have better trade. 
<laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of the surface, but there are some certain convictions about reality. Do you think those convictions about reality took certain Christian beliefs sort of for granted and, and assumptions for granted? Well, you know, I, a few weeks back, I, you know, reflected on the Declaration of Independence and the, you know, the statements concerning inalienable rights. How did the Founding Fathers justify those inalienable rights, do you remember? By appealing to the Creator. They are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, we live in a, in a society that's increasingly uh, unwilling to acknowledge a Creator. So what's the basis of our rights? Any suggestions? Well, that's always where you can go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, who's, who's got more power at the moment? And that's certainly the way it's playing out. Identity politics, it's all kind of very hardball. This is my team. You know, we're going to get what we can get. Yeah? Rights are often now viewed as a, it's in relationship to an individual versus what's best for the collective group. Yeah, well, there, there's always been, with regard to this matter of how, how, say, the society and the individual relate to each other, What's the best way to think about it? Um, there are certain things that say a community can uh, limit an individual uh, and is the exercise of that person's freedom. You know, and then there, there are a set of reasons you can do that. But then there are limits on that. You know, like you know, there are certain unalienable rights, in other words, that we're not going to violate. So there's that, that connection. But then the question is, is if there's no God, where do the rights come from? Well the government, maybe this particular stage of things, the government is, uh, for practical, pragmatic reasons, permitting people to have certain freedoms. But if that's the case, then maybe it'll, things will change. You know, we'll take them back. Yep, Dan. Uh, I come from the 70s and the 80s, and there used to be a bumper sticker that said, if it feels good, do it. Yeah. Now, You've talked a, a little bit about vocabulary redefinition and rights. Nobody knows what that means anymore. Yeah. Nobody knows the core. Nobody knows the history. Nobody knows where that came from. So if it feels good, it must be a right. Well, and there's another thing that's kind of fun. I just uh, was introduced to a book this past week by a guy named Thomas Dixon. And I'm actually going to talk about it very, very briefly in my sermon. But it's a, a story of... Uh, where the term emotions come from. So from, it's entitled From Passions to Emotions. So the word emotion wasn't introduced into the English language until the mid-18th century by David Hume. There's an interesting thought. Now, why was David Hume interested in this? Well, David Hume was a skeptic. He didn't believe in the logos because he was a functional atheist. He couldn't say it out loud because at that time that would mean you'd be like, you know, you lose your job. <laughs> but you could behave that way. And uh, so prior to that, the Christian way of talking about sort of the, psycho sort of the psychology of a human being, there, there were passions and affections. Now we talk about emotions. There's a certain transition that's occurred. Passions and affections uh, can be confused with or conflated with way the way we think about emotions, but emotions are more or less just sort of spontaneous things that just emerge and just kind of go with it, right? And uh, they're not bad or good. In fact, maybe they are good. They're all good, you know, that kind of thing. That's kind of Rousseau's take. 
But the earlier Christian understanding was that passions can be good if they're directed. They just don't run willy-nilly, you know. Uh, your passions had to be bridled, controlled, and your affections were directed, not just spontaneous. You chose which thing based on whether you thought it was worth your love or degree of love. So when you think about like St. Augustine, uh, what he maintained is that basically sin is disordered love. So you have the power to say, God is the one who should receive my devotion, total devotion. My spouse, you know, and children, next. Then, you know, my community. You know, you know and this is implied in, you know, Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And your neighbor as yourself, right? So there's, there's a sense in which it's a command. It's not just, hey, you know, I was just walking down the street and I saw this gal and love at first sight and got swept up in that, you know. <laughs> and the next thing you know, three years later, they're divorced, <laughs> right? Because love, and understood in those terms, is just sort of the surge of your emotions is a very unstable thing, which you, we, we can't have a society uh, that's stable if the basis of our moral life is unstable, right? So anyway, but getting back to this, this other issue, so how, do, how, how are things uh, functioning right now? Well, we have a, a kind of a de facto uh, uh, atheism and materialism that is the basis of our government, governing institutions, and, and so forth. Yep. I would say that the original text it put fences around uh, um, fences around what you actually believed as a denomination, and then the new version is denominations, and they took the fences away, and it slowly leaked out, and there's no more borders, there's no more rules anymore. So getting back to Pat, so Patrick Deneen, uh, he he said the reason why liberalism failed is because it succeeded. In other words, the, the, the premises, the premises that were baked in have kind of played themselves out. You know, what, it's like when you make a cake and you, and you put arsenic in it and then you like bake it and then you eat it and you die. What did you expect to have happen? <laughs> That's his point. Now, is he right? That's what we're going to be talking about on the show. Uh, in, in fact, his latest book is, is entitled Get This Regime Change, where he's calling for a pretty radical change. And there are more and more guys like this. So the Christian nationalist movement is just another manifestation of this. Yeah. So um, with this new version, the, um, and there's no boundaries, and then they started the state school system. Well, if you send yeah. your kids to the Roman school, what do you expect but Romans? Yeah, well, and, you know, go back to Horace Mann, John Dewey, and you actually look at it. So if you look at, so I just read, you know, I've got another friend named Jeff Polette. He's actually the head of the... Uh, the Ford, uh, the uh, Gerald Ford uh, Foundation. Is that what it is? But anyway, uh, we go back a long way, and he he did a he did a great treatment in the latest uh, edition of Religion and Liberty on public schools and the sort of the philosophy of Horace Mann, who was basically a lapsed Presbyterian. Nobody worse than a lapsed Presbyterian. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he uh, basically uh, is the, the mind behind our public school system. So now it's, ob it's obviously played out quite a bit and you've got other things that have come into to the mix, but you know, uh, the sort of the thing that Horace Mann uh, was looking for was a kind of secularized Christianity. So a lot of the, a lot of the early thinkers thought there were really good things about the Christian faith. What they were trying to do is find other bases for, for, for like supporting those things. Yeah. What would be one of their main bases for supporting these? Well, basically, uh, the, the approaches were utilitarian and kind of pragmatic. So if you take a person like, say, uh, Benjamin Franklin, and this is one of the things about a lot of these guys, they were thoroughly catechized, in other words, in the Christian faith. Franklin was, you know, Puritan stock from Boston. Um, so he, he knew the Christian faith pretty well from childhood, but he had rejected it kind of in, in its supernatural uh, sort of aspects, but wanted to hold on to its moral teachings because he thought loving your neighbor, that's great. Even loving God, great. You know, all, that, all that's great. We just need to figure out another way to kind of get people to do that without appealing to miracles and stuff like that special creation. Didn't work. Uh, I think I told you about uh, Franklin being uh, George Whitfield's publicist. He made a lot of money off of George Whit Whitfield. Uh, this is one of those things that you just don't hear much about, but yeah, Franklin was the publisher of George Whitfield. And he would actually go to the big revival meetings and very, very pleased to see the crowds. <laughs> you know, what was he seeing? Money. <laughs> Going to sell a lot of books today. <laughs> anyway, I, so anyway, this is, all, this is all very relevant, and it's becoming relevant again. We, you know, if, if you, you know, thought about kind of America during the 1950s, there was sort of a civil religion that was, church attendance was way up. Um, and it was more or less everybody thought, hey, we kind of figured it out. You know, we can kind of have this, you know, uh, civil religion, uh, and uh, it's going to be able to kind of maintain a, a kind of a, a good sort of social uh, atmosphere. Um, and we'll just let everybody make the choices that they make, and then boom, 1960s, everything goes to Looney Tunes. But it was all bubbling before that. That's another kind of thing. It wasn't like, you know, one day out of the public schools next day insanity. There was a lot of stuff that was going on before that. So like in the 1930s, there was a, you know, the Communist Party of the United States could fill a football stadium for their rallies. So that's another, you know, we, <laughs> there are a lot, there's a lot about our own history that fo folks are out of touch with. The fascists were huge in the United States. Uh, there was just a lot of things in the atmosphere, particularly in the 20s and the 30s, um, that people are unaware of. So there's a there's all kinds of social unrest for a long time. Yeah, ready. I'm wondering if the original version would have supported, for instance, Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York. She says that to be a good Christian and to love your neighbor as yourself and to follow the word of God, 
you will get COVID vaccinated. Yeah, yeah. And she did that from the pulpit from her governor lecture and mm-hmm. said, this is what you do. So would the original version of this passage actually say, yeah, follow what she says, or does the new version protect us from having to follow what she says? Yeah, I, it's, it's, those are great questions. And I think that uh, even you know, in the original, there was obviously disagreement about that kind of stuff because we're talking about uh, the Puritan movement, which uh, was directed against the established Anglican Church, and uh, or at least the establishment within the Anglican Church as it was connected to the crown. And then, you know, you had a new established church, which was reformed and reforming, and then they got knocked out. <laughs> so there was a there was a sense in which that debate was still a live debate, but it was a political debate. So, you know, if the, you know the, the people who are running things say do this, and then there's another s- sort of ecclesial authority who says no. Then you got to have it out. So, would the the original version really have been produced because the men that produced it were a little naive to how quickly the world can actually change the definitions of everything? Yeah, I think that there was uh, an optimism that they had that, okay, we've won. Now we're going to run the show. So then they lost. <laughs> yeah, David. Um, so what I noticed, uh, and then you can tell me where this happened, but like that Dr. Joshua Mitchell, he's Presbyterian in terms he's of... Not, he's Catholic. Oh, he's Catholic. Well, it's very interesting because he said when I listened to the podcast... But the Constitution itself would really solve the problems if, in his words, the Protestant church just got back on the ball. That was interesting coming from him because typically when I would hear people from a Catholic background, they seem to be more intermarried with uh, the church. One of the problems that we have when we look at that part of the sort of the larger church is we uh, paint it uh, in a very sort of monochromatic tone or uh, color. Uh, Catholicism is as crazy as Protestantism once you get inside it. So it depends on what Catholics you're talking about. (laughs) So the Mary Knoll sisters are commies. I'm absolutely serious. Orbis books, total commies, you know. And then you got, you know, uh, you know, in Steubenville, Ohio, you know, you know, uh, very sort of traditionalist Roman Catholic school. What's that called? Is it uh, Franciscus, Franciscan University, whatever? Anyway, and actually, you actually have some ex-Presbyterians on the religion faculty there. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a very odd world. It's not not nearly as uh, homogenous as as we on the outside seem to think it is. Yeah, Steve. I had an acquaintance in Grants Pass, an older gal who uh, was Roman Catholic, and Francis had just got installed. Yeah. And I said, so how do you like your new pope? <laughs> oh, he's just a communist. Yeah, yeah. There, a lot of folks can't stand him. <laughs> Most of my friends just think he is uh, the devil incarnate. Most of my Roman Catholic friends, because I'm, I'm kind of t- connected to the traditionalist wing of the Roman Catholic Church. Those are the... You know, and I would imagine Pat feels the same way. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I, I'm, we're kind of going all over the place, but that's what this does, you know, kind of gets us into the question, what is going to be the um, set of 
beliefs that inform our laws, inform our social life. Uh, you know, what are, what are those? Uh, it's, it's all in play right now. Yep. So in the original version, it says that the truth of God can kept pure and entire. It's like, uh, about eight, five years ago, we had a rule of law here and in Canada that is completely gone. Yeah. It, there is no rule of law at all. There's no standard at all anymore. Right. It's like, so the, the church that was trying to keep itself pure is open to any denomination, all denominations, without harassment. But now the government can do any law they want without harassment. Well, yeah, and so this plays out in lots of different ways, and you noted that. But it also is uh, uh, troubling, even for people who maybe aren't at all interested in the Christian faith. So how do we establish the rule of law when we don't believe that there is any truth that can be apprehended and communicated at all? Not just truth about the Bible or God, but period. Um, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Can you, can you reason then to the point of logical conclusion? I mean, nobody actually wants to live in that world. Right. <laughs> so you have to bring them to where the, where the conclusions are to try to get them to rethink that. Is that a... Yeah, I think that's a great way to go about, you know, sort of addressing the problem at a very practical level. Because you're right, uh, even people who disagree with us pretty adamantly on theological matters don't want insanity, you know. Uh, the problem is, is that there are a lot of people who wouldn't mind insanity, and they're pushing for it, and that's, uh, and they vote. And so you end up with, uh, you know, a situation where, you know, you have uh, politicians who are trying to um, placate, please, um, particular movements that are really causing, you know, making it more and more difficult to hold everything together. Yeah, Christian. Is it fair to say that the debate is really over how much separation there ought to be between the church and the state? Right. And that the two things that, that we would be solving for are preservation of true religion and preservation of civil order yeah, um, and there's just debate over what is the right, uh, which which approach, like either a tall firewall or a thin thin one, yeah. is better for maintaining. Yeah. yeah, I think that's at least in the Christian side of the political philosophy world. That's the the nature of the debate, and um, people are are kind of taking sides and. I've seen guys who used to be friends. <laughs> and, it, you know, we're kind of used to this in the reform world. We were always, like, splitting over stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're, you know, you want to see some pretty strong argumentation, just watch a couple of Presbyterians who disagree about the interpretation of, like, the word and. <laughs> and they won't have talked to each other anymore. And we're starting to see that in other places. Uh, so... And, you know, some of these guys will be on the same page 93% of the time. And it's that remaining 7%, we can't work together anymore. So it's, it's coming. Uh, so here's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, I'm familiar with the National Conservatism Movement. National Conservatism, NatCon, is a development that 
uh, really over the last maybe five or six years has become a big thing. Uh, you know, U.S. senators uh, attend the conferences usually uh, different places in the country. You know, Rubio or, you know, uh, um, governor of Florida, I'm just drawing a blank on his name right now. Uh, what's his name? DeSantis. He, he speaks at it, you know. Um, so, you know, you got some pretty big heavy hitters. Um, uh, you got big media personalities that come to it. The guy who's behind it is a guy named Yoram Hazoni, Jewish guy, Princeton grad, married a Presbyterian girl and, and brought her into the Jewish faith, and they have nine kids now. So they're actually kind of on the same page with us on like a lot of things, you know, big families, that kind of stuff. And um, so he's kind of like the guru of the national conservatism movement. He's not even like an American. He's an Israeli citizen. <laughs> and, but in that world, you've got people like you know, Patrick Deneen and you know, the Christian nationalist guys. Uh, and there's been like a wrestling match in that world between the Roman Catholics and, and the Reformed. So just recently, Yoram has kind of favored the, the Reformed because you know, he's, he said, you know, we're going to let more Reformed guys speak and fewer Roman Catholics speak. It's just crazy stuff like that. But it's a, it's a pretty significant movement. People like J.D. Vance are part of it, you know, the new senator out in Ohio. Um, so it's, it's, we're living in a really interesting time. What's that cha- Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? <laughs> So how it all plays out, um, you know, is something to consider. Um, and uh, anyway, any other thoughts on this? I know I've kind of rambled on and on. Yeah. It's like we're getting into a fear that um, by analogy looks like the judges. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Ruth Bunn does what is right in his own eyes. Yeah. Now, another thing that's interesting to think about is, you know, I'm working on this book, and uh, one of the things that... You and I were just talking about this yesterday. Um, so let's think about how does this sort of kind of make a difference in your life? Well, here's an, here's an example. This is from The Atlantic, pretty significant, high-level, prestigious publication, how engineering the human body could combat climate change. So um, they're absolutely serious. You know, there are, there are world leaders who think this is like a, a proposal that is something that we should consider. You know, one of their thoughts? Make human beings allergic to meat. Physically alter our body chemistry so we cannot eat meat like people who have got lactose intolerance. Yep, Jennifer. Well, that's done with vaccinations because if you were to vaccinate someone with, let's say, human gonadotropin, human cryonic gonadotropin, then you would create an immune response. So then when you do a secondary vaccination, then you would end up causing them to not be able to get pregnant. Well, there's a whole, you know, population control. Another thing, and that's part of this, another thing was make everybody shorter. I'm not, I'm not, like, like capping how tall people can actually get because that cuts down on carbon footprint. <laughs> yeah, ready. Just an anecdotal story. Right here in Clark County, Washington, one of Catherine's explorers with the sheriff's office 
she actually was bit by a tick 10 years ago here in the state of Washington, and it inflicted her with whatever the bug is that she now actually cannot eat red meat. She literally has an allergic reaction. Well, yeah, maybe they've been doing some experiments. We, you know, the, the story behind uh, Lyme, uh, Lyme disease is that it was the a result of some experiments that went bad in Connecticut. Uh, it's actually uh, a lab. <laughs> you know, the ticks uh, were made the way they are that probably, yeah. Mark. I think the great thing about the American version is it releases, if you will, the power that exists in the institution of the church to have its influence upon both the family and the civil magistrate as well as every other institution. And I would argue that that is absolutely consistent with the biblical pattern that God established when he established Israel originally. And when they rejected him as king and ended up with Saul, you don't have to get very far into 1 Samuel. And Saul is pursuing his political enemies and killing priests to pursue them because... They should have known right. that. Have you know, ever noticed, like, when you're reading, like, uh, you know, First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, uh, you know, the Chronicles, and you know, the priests are pretty compliant most of the time. Yeah. You know, this is the reason. <laughs> they're a little too close to. They're part of the administration. This is why the prophets are the guys out there with the hair shirts eating bugs. You know, so that they're unattached, <laughs> and you know, harder to get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you look at. <laughs> You look at the restrictions on power that our forefathers put upon the civil magistrate constitutionally, at least from a federal level. The state level is a whole different conversation. But where our problems all reside now, or greatly reside, is at that. We want to be like all the other nations and put our trust there. I think, again, What this tells us, if I'm correct, I believe I am, what this tells us is in the institution of the health, seeking seeking the health and welfare, the purity of the institution of the Church of Christ is going to be what changes our nation and and all nations. It is, Christ is building his church. His church is going to disciple the nations and I think you're looking for political solutions or family solutions apart from making the church healthy is always going to fail. Yeah, so, you know, I've been playing with things here a little bit just to sort of tease out attitudes. So you've expressed largely my convictions on the matter. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. But, but at the same time, this is a long game. There's going to be a lot of mess. And even when it comes to time to, like, make arguments for law, you know, what laws should we institute, we shouldn't, uh, even though we don't have an established church, does it, that doesn't mean we don't make biblical arguments and, and cite scripture. We, we do that. Uh, it's just that we don't, um, you know, um, bring the ecclesial and civil authorities under the same umbrella. So when I was a lot younger, I would hear this phrase, you can't legislate morality. And I heard that a lot, and I didn't really know what to make of it. 
It's so, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to listen to Greg uh, Bond said about 10, 15 years ago. He did a really good job explaining it. So what I wanted to know from your opinion is, in your circles that you listen to, um, is that even stated with any type of, of seriousness? Not anymore. I mean, I think everybody on all on all uh, areas of sort of the debate, whether you're talking about the far left or whatever, they know that that's not the case. Uh, law is based on a moral vision. So what is the moral vision? So, um, so nobody, but maybe old timers make that argument anymore. Um, but again, it gets us to this place where, uh, as this sort of plays itself out, where do we go for, um, you know, a, you know, uh, the prospects for peace and a good life and, and those kinds of things. So let me just add another wrinkle into all of this that is something I've been thinking a lot about. So as I've been working on this book, you know, my, the first half of the book is is intended to just sort of lay out the the situation that we find ourselves in, and. Um, this is an image that uh, I've developed that it's based on uh, James Burnham's work. Uh, he's the one who's famous for a book entitled The Suicide of the West, but he was one of the founders of uh, National Review magazine. But he was a Trotskyite in the 30s. Almost all the great conservative thinkers are former commies. This is just sort of an interesting fact. <laughs> I could take you to one after another and say, basically, they went on the left, they, they, had it, they tasted it, and they said, ah, <laughs> and they turned around and went right. But Burnham's one of those guys. And he, he uh, wrote a book uh, entitled the, the Managerial Revolution. And his, his point is, is that, uh, and it's something that I've been developing and uh, working with, is that totalitarianism as we know it uh, is a modern phenomenon. It isn't, it does, that doesn't mean that uh, Genghis Khan or Nero wouldn't have wanted to be able to do it. It's just they didn't have the means to do it. There are certain things that had to occur in order to make it possible. Communication, technology, you know, sort of social organization, and a very large class of managers. We uh, have an enormous uh, social class which is you know, the managerial class. And in the 19th century and 18th century, people like you know, Adam Smith and then later Karl Marx, they talked about two bodies, capitalists and you know, the proles or the proletariat, the laboring forces. And they, they more or less thought about you know, what the you know, kind of a political arrangement works best when you have those two groups. But what neither of them saw was the rise of the managerial class. And in 1941, when Burnham wrote this, he said, the, most, the, place, the places where we see the most uh, sort of impressive influence of the managerial class are Soviet Russia, Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy. In other words, the managerial class naturally trends in this direction because what do managers do? Control. Control. And how do they go about that? Well, that's another interesting thing. Managers from different spheres can work together because the, the things that they do well transfer from sort of area to area. So let's just think about something I know a lot about, which is higher education. I've been involved in higher education for 35 plus years. I've taught, I've been 
college, pre, you know, college, uh, not president, but college uh, board member, things like that. Um, when you look at, say, the, the research university as we know it today, there are some remarkable things that you can, can uh, say about it. One is, is that the faculty have almost no power. In fact, they're losing power by the day. Uh, much of the teaching in the big schools, particularly the research universities, is being done by teaching assistants and adjuncts, neither of whom are paid all that well uh, and um, you know, are not receiving benefits. So you got a PhD, you got a part-time job, you're making $30,000 a year, and you got no health insurance. I can tell you person after person after person I know who are like that. Um, and then even the presidents of those institutions are just fundraisers. They just spend all their time. I mean, I remember the president of Harvard said he had to raise a million dollars a day to keep. It's the largest endowment in the world. He still has to raise a million dollars a day. Who, what part of the university is where, the, you know, do you find the power? It's the administration. So you got the dean of uh, diversity and inclusion, you know, pulling $400,000 a year and a staff of, of, of people who do nothing but police pronouns all day. And that staff keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. How did it all happen? It's the collusion between the federal government, the research universities, and industry. The only part, the only thing that major research industries or uh, universities care about now is research. That's, if you're on the faculty and then that's where you want to spend your time is in research. You don't want to teach at all. You just want to do your research, uh, particularly in STEM. That's where the money is. That's where the, that's where the funding is. That's, that's where big corporations are throwing their money. That's where the federal government is throwing its money. What? Uh, research and STEM. STEM. STEM would be uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. Those, that's where the prestige is now. Uh, in the universities. And so in the humanities, they're all trying to become relevant. And you know, how do they do that? They become relevant, becoming very politically sort of active, reinterpreting all of their texts within the latest sort of fads. You know, what, what are the fads? All the fads have to do with, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that kind of stuff. So that means that we have to read Shakespeare in light of that. And what are the racist themes in Shakespeare? You know, and that's, that's all you hear about anymore. So, uh, how did it all come out? Well, the managers in this sort of sphere and the managers in this sphere are all really kind of easy to, they, they find it really easy to work with each other. There's kind of synergies that occur. So a lot of us, when we think about like a totalitarian regime, we, we have this idea of like a, a big spider at the center of a web. And that, that, and that spider is named Stalin or Pol Pot or Adolf Hitler. And if we say, if we, can, if we can eliminate the spider, you know, totalitarianism goes away. But I actually think it's much more like a, a swarm. It's like bees. These, this sort of managerial class uh, is self-organizing. So like when we think about what happened during COVID, they were all working together in a coordinated fashion that didn't require any collusion, there was no conspiracy, and many of our pastors belonged to the managerial class and were just right on board with it all. 
what do we do with that? Well, that's what the second half of my book <laughs> is intended to address. But I think that's the situation we find ourselves in. Managerial class. It's not like you can get, with, get along without managers. That's not like I'm saying managers are evil. We need managers. But how do we, how do we manage the managers <laughs> you know, so that they don't spend all their time managing us? Because you know, they want to make the world a better place. And in order to do that, they need to have more control over you and me. Yeah. There were a couple of things that came out of the whole COVID thing, though, that, that I don't think they, anticip they anticipated. Um, one of them was kind of the shutdown of schools globally. So now all of a sudden, parents were finding out what their kids were learning. <laughs> and then remote work was another thing yeah. that, while it hasn't stuck as well as I'd hoped, yeah. was kind of an unintended consequence that's maybe germinated something that's going to yeah. start pushing back against these things. So I see that as the providence of God in this. I mean, it's obviously over all of it. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, we prayed for the demise of the public schools for decades. Yeah. God shut them down overnight. <laughs> and it had, it had real positive consequences. Yeah. So we'll see what he's got in store. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I'm, I'm, I'm not at all discouraged. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, when I think about it, the worst case scenarios can be discouraging. But when I think about things like you just brought out, uh, you know, uh, you know they, they don't control as much as they would like to believe. And um, so uh, in terms of the role of the church and all this, uh, Megan Besham, who, who's a reporter at the Daily Wire and is homeschooling mom, she uncovered uh, the, the collusion of many of the evangelical elite with the COVID people, uh, you know, at WHO and at NIH and, uh, and so forth. And that all came out and it was pretty embarrassing. Yeah. So, since we lived in Canada during that, um, just what has come out in Canada is that there was a document distributed for all corporations on who you would allow a medical exemption or and a religious exemption, and it stated on that particular document that any Christian going for a religious exemption should be denied because their main leaders all accepted that yeah. vaccination. So that actually came out in court in Ontario. That, that, that whoever, like in all the unions and stuff, could say, okay, no, Christians don't get it. Yeah, yeah I think that's uh, unsurprising. I wasn't unaware of that, but uh, we, we didn't have it uh, quite to that, um, you know, sort of degree here. But, you know, people like, well, I won't get into all the names. But anyway, uh, this is kind of free-flowing discussion all related around those changes in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and this is just it's an on, ongoing uh, thing that we have to deal with, and I think we'll increasingly have to deal with. Anyway, well, let's pray. Father, we pray for wisdom in these matters. Um, we live, as the Chinese curse says, in an interesting time. Uh, we are looking for your guidance. We want to know what to do. We want to be faithful. We want to be good citizens, of course. We want to contribute to the public wheel and, and uh, love our neighbors. At the same time, loving your neighbor can actually mean defying the government and uh, because in so doing, we can secure the rights that we all enjoy that way or at least help to. So give us wisdom to know when to comply, when to defy, uh, and may we seek your glory in all these things. And help us, too, to think about uh, how, just as a church and as families who are looking to serve you, 
we can go ahead and just pursue uh, righteousness and justice uh, in our own institutions um, and do that uh, without uh, any interference. In Christ's name, amen.